It's about being comfortable with the uncomfortable, making a habit out of that. And I think I had been very prepared through my father's death and then living alone and trying to create a life out of that to get to a point where once I felt alone again and where I, and I couldn't travel uh, and depend on travel to reset my, my mental health, uh, all I could do was to hone on past experiences of embracing discomfort and becoming, as you said, one with the waves, one with chaos. And then going back to your, your Russia story, I know it's travel and whatnot, but we always say at the end of the day, you can either have a good trip or a good story. That's the story you remember. If everything went hunky-dory and according to plan, you're going to be like, it was a good trip. You're not going to be bringing it up in a podcast with someone you just met. You are proud of that story. And not, I don't want to minimize what happened with COVID because that was people died. But the feeling of being comfortable with chaos and saying, we're going to get out of this. And I'm going to remember this. I'm going to honor it. I'm going to properly grieve it when it's time to. But until I get to that point, until I deserve that space to be able to grieve properly, I'm going to become one with chaos and just go with the waves because if I freak out or leave or not show up to work because I, and I had the means to, as a per diem doctor, I could have chosen not to show up. I didn't sign up, never sign a full-time contract. I ended up with my freedom to work wherever I wanted, showing up more often in more places than I expected to. What's up everybody. Welcome to the mental purpose podcast. I'm your host, Ian Lobos. Today, I just got off this really magical ride with Dr. Calvin's son. And I mean, the guy is just, what an incredible story. Father passed away when he was young, like literally right after an argument, his dad got on a treadmill and died. Okay. I'm not spoiling it. You're going to have to listen. He dropped some real gold bombs in here. And then you know, he, he starts traveling the world and learning about himself and learning how to trust himself. And he becomes a doctor. And then he's a doctor in the ER during COVID. And we talk about living a double life, like the life your parents wanted and the life that you wanted. And we talk about uh, pushing yourself against a boulder and, and, and life feeling like that. We talk about being comfortable with uncomfortable, trusting the process of your life, learning how to trust yourself, learning how to love yourself how travel can help you unlock those things that are kind of caught up inside, getting over res re resentment and regret, especially with the death of a parent, becoming a doctor. I talk uh, about my dad and the story about my dad and I, and you're going to catch that right in the middle of the episode, being alone, having freedom, and keeping your integrity intact. And there's a lot of other little things in here. It's a very powerful, quick episode. It's not as long as the other ones. Just you know, he was calling from the Faroe Islands. If you don't know where they are, Google them. I had to. It's up by Scotland and, and Iceland. And the guy's just living an incredible life. And, and, and it's because he made a choice to keep pushing forward, realizing that he was worth it and that he was valuable. And I really just appreciated who this guy is and the human that he is for the world and the model he is as a man on purpose. And so we're going to talk about a lot of cool stuff. Right now, I'm not even going to read you his bio. He's a doctor. He traveled 200 countries. He's done some really amazing stuff. There's your bio. He wrote a cool book called um, Monsoon Diaries. It's awesome, right? Let's get into the episode real quick before we do. Make sure you go to our new website, menonpurpose.net, menonpurpose.net. Download our free purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook. Also, if you haven't yet, please join our Men on Purpose community. We've got a lot of cool stuff, free content, a lot of cool stuff going on in there, a lot of support and structure. Uh, you know, just, just guys hanging and talking and, and being authentic and vulnerable and open and honest with each other about what shit they're experiencing. And that's it, right? That's it. Look, we are going through a, a transition right now in Men on Purpose where we are helping men become irreplaceable as husbands, as fathers, as humans, as business owners and managers and leaders. And you are going to hear that more and more and more and more. After this episode, it's going to keep getting more and more. And inside the community, we're going to keep getting more and more as we talk about our five pillars, our, our, our self, our spouse, our kids, our career, and our community, and how we can be the best version of us. And it all starts with us. You gotta commit to the work on you. You must. If you don't think you're worth it, if you don't trust yourself to stick with it, that's fine. We can deal with that. All you gotta do is raise your hand and say, you know what? The cycle I'm on, 
the ride I'm on, this conveyor belt, this path I'm on, it's not right. I don't feel aligned. I need help. We'll help you. We'll help you get your vision, your mission, and your purpose. We'll help you with all the skills to evolve your entire freaking being, goal setting, talking with your wife and kids, whatever it might be, making more money, it all comes because of your growth, your life growth to the extent that you do. So let's get rocking on this episode. Appreciate all of you. Enjoy. All right, Calvin, let's get rocking here, man. First of all, welcome to the podcast. Really appreciate having you on and this really interesting and pretty amazing story that you have that you're going to share with our audience. I'm, I'm excited about that, man. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah of course. Of course. Um, I, I love the travel part of your life and I want to get into that. First and foremost, I, what I like to do on here is I like to dig in to the past. Do you think you had a hard childhood? Let's get into that time machine, man. Yeah. <laughs> if we want to. I mean, I've been reliving this over and over. I mean, the past lives along with the present. The answer is yes. Had a hard childhood, but didn't really all of us. And yeah, of course. Yeah, and it's just how we live with that. Uh, it, it, you need to choose to ignore it and try to move on, or you just confront it head on. And you know, I get into that time machine over and over and over again. You know, when I was writing my book, it was kind of like therapy just to go back and you know try to honor it, try to properly grieve it, try to go through it. So that you can live in the present and be like, you know what? I feel li- today's a little easier now, despite yeah. the childhood, or because of it. Yeah. So go d- dig into that. I I want the audience to understand that, like, although you're calling me from the Faroe Islands and you you travel every month or every week, and you live this pretty amazing life. There's there's this past that you have that I just talk to them about that because. That is what we all kind of, it's almost like the glue that bonds us, right? The nobody, nobody escaped childhood without any trauma. No one escaped childhood without any stuff from their parents or their school or their society or their lacrosse team or whatever it was, you know, I was what, what was your childhood? <laughs> yeah, I did that not know that. I was, that, that was, I was traumatic, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's very primal lacrosse chasing each other around yeah. with a stick and like throwing stuff at each other and oh, checking yeah. each other. It's yeah. I, I enjoyed lacrosse. That. Yeah. In a young age. Right. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was like living a double life. I mean, we're going to go with lacrosse as a good segue organically. I would like sneak out from the library uh, after my parents dropped me off because they, they would make sure that I would study all the time. And then I'll go to lacrosse practice in between and then run back up to practice uh, be at the library again and then say, yeah, I was here the whole time. And that's what childhood is like. It was so hard. I had to live a double life at the age of like 11, 12. I mean, all of us did subconsciously, wow. um, but yeah. I, I, I made it a habit and it wasn't healthy for me because it was that split personality, Batman and Bruce Wayne, uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. So yeah, that was difficult. Childhood was yeah, one where like, I, I didn't know what I wanted. I, I there was a, uh, part where I thought I was fed what I wanted from my parents and I'm grateful to them. You know, they gave me an education, a roof over my head. They fed me, clothed me. Like I know they loved me in their way, but there was another part of me that's like it, the things they want me to do for my career, my future. Do they really know better than I did? Why do I feel wrong about hearing what they said? And do I honor that feeling wrong or should I just give into that? Or should I start thinking for myself and finding where I begin and they end? When you said they love me in their way, I guess, like there's so many people that say that to me that, that I coach or that I run into, they'll say, you know, my parents did the best they could. They love me in their way. You know, I, I think about my parents, my parents were great to me. They, they loved me. They, they did their thing. They traumatized me too. And I, I almost feel like as a parent today that I have a responsibility to my kids to do my personal development work, my soul searching, my deep level work from the past so that I don't pass that stuff on like our parents did to us. Did you ever yeah. deal with that? I mean, like actually move through that, that whole statement of my parents love me, you know, they're, they're in their way. Did you ever talk to them about how you wanted to be loved when you figured it out as an adult? Yeah, we're assuming that they even know the language. 
right right how to right. communicate a language that's so you that's, right. that's we we're more accustomed to speaking to you know our friends or the people in our generation but think to what our parents went through i mean i guess my parents and maybe your parents didn't get around a table and talk about mental health and traumas no. in their childhood they were i think i think it saved us for a lot of us they were trying to put food on the table they were trying to survive and they were like you know what as long as we're breathing and the kids fed that's good enough. They should be grateful for everything else. And then we have every right to show that, you know, they're human too. Their sure. frustrations, which may be taken out on us because we are the vulnerable ones uh, instead of trying to shelter us. Not all of us had parents that had the privilege to be very comfortable and, you know, take us out and talk to us about our emotions and being able to know what you know, a self-actualization meant. But we talk about it all the time with our peers now it's a language that we're more accustomed to and yes and when it is our responsibility with that extra privilege to be able to talk about this now that we're comfortable we don't have to put worry we don't want to worry to, about putting food at the table for our kids so the best we can do is emotionally shelter them in a way that our parents did not and we don't want to blame our parents either because it was harder for them yeah. back then than it sure. would be for us right now you know what's interesting i couldn't imagine with my inner circle friends, maybe not some like acquaintances. I couldn't imagine with my inner circle friends, not sharing myself like vulnerably and openly and honestly and sharing, Hey man, I'm kind of going through some stuff with my wife or I'm kind of going through some stuff with my business or I'm really struggling about this own, this, you know, just growth piece in me. I couldn't imagine not doing that. I also can't imagine our parents sitting around drinking, you know, Miller lights with a pool tab around a, you know, shag carpet with green painted wall basement and going, I'm really feeling vulnerable today. You know, that, that's just not something that I can picture. It's interesting how the generations and, 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 and men have evolved yet. There's so much more evolution to go. It's still, I, I wouldn't imagine that. And my kids, like I was telling somebody today was asking me about my morning routine and how I stay consistent. And how I wake up at really early times, you know, 4.35 in the morning, and, and what am I motivated to do? And I said, you know, sometimes when I find that I'm not motivated to get up and do something, like I'm at my parents' house now and going back to L.A., which is where home is, in a, in a week, I'm, I'm getting up because I want to stay consistent with my sleep schedule, and even on weekends. And I go in and I'll look at my kids sleeping, and I'll speak to them with gratitude and love and openness. And tell them how they've impacted my life. And then when they get up, I'll tell them about what I shared with them. And I'll share it with them from a place where they can understand that dad's communicating his feelings and his emotions to us. So it's not weird for a, a guy to do that. And I'm, I'm working to change that dynamic for the next generation. That's awesome. I, I'm going to take some yeah. notes down. I, how old are your kids when you started <laughs> doing that? Because I want to make sure they like, it's not like I want to take my two-year-old to a you know, a country, they're not going to remember that. But what's the age when you can talk to them? They're like, yeah, I remember you said, you know, did that when I was growing up. You know, dude, I, uh, I have, I have, um, I remember when my daughter was born and I was very emotional because life was changing, right? It, it, it wasn't about me anymore. It, it wasn't about just my wife and I and picking up and going and doing what we wanted. It was about like, okay, now you have to grow up. You have to become the man that you're supposed to be for this person to lead them. This isn't like a, hey, kids are better seen than heard. You fit into my life kind of deal. There is an aspect of the fit into my life. I started talking to her when she was born. Mm. And, and then I think at about two to two and a half years old, she started very early with talking, very early with potty training, like, she potty trained herself. She was full sentences by probably a year and a half. Like she's super, super smart kid. And, um, and she, I, I would bring her with me and, and sit her little body in the sink next to me at like 5am. And she would watch me do affirmations and brush my teeth and drink water and do this little morning routine. And eventually I'm going to tell you right now, I have a video of her at like two and a half years old doing affirmations in the mirror wow. with me. And then I have a video that's really cool of her at three and a half standing up on top of the counter, like fist pumping in the mirror, like I am smart. I am beautiful. Like the affirmations awesome. that she learned from me. And I just said to her, 
hey, these are my affirmations. If you'd like me to teach you some, I can. And that's what we did. So honestly, dude, I would say from day one, I started practicing the the habit of sharing. Yeah, sharing with her. And it's not about teaching her what I was doing. It was about including her in the process where I know a lot of men who I speak with are like, man, I just can't get a break. I got a newborn at home or I got a young kid. I can't get a morning routine. I go grab them. You want to influence your kid? Let them sit and watch you sit in a meditative pose for 10 minutes. Let them play around you. I think that's super cool. Yeah. Set by, live by example, set the example from day one and make it their habit and your, your habits too. The ones that you're, you're grateful for. And I think that it was going back to our parents. Maybe their good enough was the best and was good enough. And that's how we got to this point. I mean, here we are in spite of, because maybe we are because we learned we could do better. And our parents did so much that they could to get us here. And I, and I think we could be grateful for that. Here we are talking about these things. I mean, maybe our parents you didn't do this on the, the shag carpet, but. Right, right. <laughs> you think you'd be in the same position if you didn't have that type of struggle? And I, I ask this question a lot. It's I, so, I wonder about our kids and the lack of struggle because we're pushing and providing for them. Yeah, it's so it's this dilemma that I go through. And I like write in my book about how I lost my father when I was a teenager, he died suddenly after we had an argument, you know, one of those many arguments we had. Uh, and, you know, after he died, that's when my life hit this inflection point where I, you know, see this before and after. And the short answer is, yeah, I think we got to this point because of you know, what happened to me that I learned how to be independent and, you know, my, my, my father being so difficult and strict on me and then all of a sudden disappearing was the kind of the fire I needed to get to where I am right now. But then there's another part of me that wonder if he had stayed alive, would I still have the motivation in me to be able to live for myself? And that's why I admire some people who have it all. No one dies. Everything's hunky dory. And then they still go, something's off. I need to live for myself. And huh. I have really no spark except for the one that lives within me to finally one day randomly decide to leave it all behind and live for themselves. And that go, I go back and forth. I mean, obviously, that didn't happen in this multiverse, or this version of the multiverse. Uh, but I am you know, very grateful to have had my father's um, presence in my life as long as he lived. Uh, and then his sudden loss is, I think, also a, a crucial point in to getting me to where sure. I am today. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, now I'm just I'm curious. I've read your bio. It's just that's I didn't understand that part, which is after an argument, he was just gone. What can you can you just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it was so sudden. He was such a big presence in my life in a, an emotional sense. Not physically, until unless the times he was actually physically home. Uh, the sh- long story short, he's that he, he was very strict, and he pretty much carved my entire life out for me. He told me to be a doctor. I didn't even have a choice between engineer, mm-hmm. banker, or lawyer, which is the, on par for the course. I mean, get a choice. And he structured it out for me. He was very strict about with all these rules. And, you know, the privilege was the education that he provided for me, making sure that I would always be disciplined and going to class and studying really hard, even though I was a really bad student. And he would move me from schools and send me to Saturday schools and music school and just to buff up you know, my, what my brain could be capable of. And I would just go. And then as I grew up, I knew something was wrong and I started rebelling. I don't know if that's a natural part of me or being influenced by growing up in New York City. Maybe he should have raised me in a quieter place. But I became a rebel and he became my boulder. And when I was 19, and we would argue a lot. And when I was 19, after another argument, he went to a treadmill and dropped dead from a sudden heart attack. And in the context of things, it was a week after he had told me he was proud of me for the first time, randomly. We were at like a buffet place in Chinatown, $3 buffet. You got a mountain of rice and your choice of three vegetables. And he just sat down. I was like, I don't know know why I'm telling you this, but I'm proud of you. And I'm like, what, you know, like what is going on? Is the, you know, I was going to say like, are you dying? I'm like, literally I didn't know, but I, he didn't know. 
and you know, the closest thing I could explain is like I was reading Joan Didion's book, A Year in Magical Thinking that week. And she said that her, her husband right before he passed would just act in a certain way. Like he subconscious, his DNA and cells he knew that. Knew, yeah. But he didn't know consciously. And I think that's my dad's heart cells were like, you're going to die in a week. And somehow the transient his brain is like, I got to tell him. But he never, he was confused too. He's like, well, I don't know why you're telling me. I'm telling you this, but I guess I'll explain it later. I don't know. He just came out of his mouth. He was shocked. And a week later he died. And, you know, part of me wonder, was it because we argued? So it feels like you're pushing a boulder your entire life and the boulder just vanishing. And now you fall over yeah. and you're like, what do I do now? And it's really weird when you're like looking around you and it's like, okay, what do I do now? Because I've been pushing all my life. I have nothing to push against. So you feel useless. You feel helpless. And now no one's telling you what to do with your life. My mom got uh, diagnosed with Parkinson's that summer and she was living with her parents. I was went from my family to being alone. Uh, and my, my dad was only around on the weekends. He had his business in Connecticut. My mom was dealing with taking care of this motel. So I only saw them on weekends. I was raised by a family of babysitters. So wow. I went from weird family dynamic to just myself all in the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college. And wow. yeah, that was, that was a head trip. That, it was the yeah. worst and best summer of my life is how I like to frame it looking back. Damn, man. That is heavy. That's super heavy. What about regret and resentment? Did I mean, what did you, how did you process through that? Because if somebody listening right now, that's like, I went through something like that and I'm still reeling from it five years later or 10 years later, do you think you've gotten over it or can you get over it? And how did you deal with the resentment and the regret of, of, of not just the childhood you had and the like the strict, this is what you're going to do. You're kind of like my little puppet. And then all of a sudden your dad left you. And there's another amount of regret and resentment. That's like, why the fuck did you leave? Why'd you leave me, man? Like you just told me you were proud of me. Shit was turning. And then you left me. Right. Such so tease. You teased me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the regret comes from the not being able to communicate it with him sooner. And, and it was very, sad for me because I was cleaning out his stuff the week of his funeral and I found these diaries that he wrote to my older brother who's 14 years older than I am same father different mothers uh, he's exactly like my brother but half brothers and he would write you know how much my brother meant to him uh, during the divorce when my brother was growing up hoping that my brother would eventually read it the irony is that I ended up reading them my brother still refuses to read them uh, and you know I know what my dad is capable of of being able to convey that he was proud of a son and that he had emotions for his, for a son, but he never communicated to me, he, except indirectly through a diary to another brother. That really screws with your head because you know what now he's capable, but maybe you, you know, you go the, the, re, the resentment may be from now I know you're capable of, you could have gotten away saying, Hey, I just don't know how to communicate. I don't know how to write. And, you know, speak sure. to a son about emotions, but then you see this evidence and you know, like, oh, why didn't he do that with me? Kind of give me a little bit, but where are my diaries? Where, where are the diaries he wrote, wrote, have, uh, wrote to me? And it doesn't exist. So how do you get over that is, you, you know, you, you have to start getting up. What happens when you push a boulder and disappears? What would you do? You look around and then you start using that as, rather than something that, oh, this happened to me, I deserve this, or bad things happened to me. Instead of that, to say, how can this be an opportunity for me to start anew? Most people would kill for the chance for a reset in their lives, wherever yeah. you are, whoever is listening, just like, oh man, things are not going the way I want. Can I just have a reset? You want to reset your computer when you have too many tabs open. It's kind of a, a relief, like just pull a little plug and it's like, yes, I can start with a clean slate. Be, and that to me, as terrible as it was, was the only way I could really survive that summer was like, could this be a clean slate for me? And I, that's when I decided not to become a doctor, not to live for myself, to become a bartender, to do the job I love the most. I was a bartender on campus, uh, Columbia Bartending Agency, best paying job. And I kind of just stuck to that. I was also in student council. So I was like, I want to do that. And then I didn't have to live a double life. I was hiding all that stuff away from my parents. So that was step one. That also then becomes, you know, a factor of resentment and regret. It's like now I don't know if I'm doing these things to rebel against my late father for the rest of my life, or is it really coming from me? 
and then you do this this little dance. Uh, it's like the poison cup scene from The Princess Bride. I don't know which cup is the poison cup, so you might as well just drink right. one of them. What's up, guys? I'm so sorry to interrupt the episode. I just need one minute to share with you all the new and exciting, amazing stuff we've got created here at Men on Purpose. First of all, thank you for listening to the podcast and supporting the movement we're creating for all the men in the world. Next, you've got to check out our new website, menonpurpose.net, where you'll find all kinds of cool stuff, including links to our podcast and the free Men on Purpose community. You're also going to find our new free purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook and links to all of our new coaching programs and products. Look, I've had so many of you ask me where to get started with your personal growth journey or where you can go to level up. So I put this thing together, this free ebook and mini course, and we're going to be talking about and coaching you through a really light version of our purpose-driven formula, which is our foundational formula. And for those of you who are ready now, we got you. Listen up, whether it's becoming the best husband, being the best dad, quitting that job that doesn't serve you, just understanding how to put you first we've got what you need to align with your authentic self and find that true fulfillment and live a life with no regrets look we're helping men with structure support and sustainability that's what you've asked for and that's what we deliver as we lead you through proven and tested curriculum that focuses on formulas to help you get farther faster so make sure you go to menonpurpose.net click the button to download our free powerful purpose-driven formula mini course and ebook and while you're there, make sure you check out some of our amazing products designed to help you find your purpose, stop self-sabotage, and dial in your mindset, skills, and habits to evolve into the best version of you. Why? Because we want you to live and have the best life possible. No regrets. So, mentalpurpose.net, let's get back to the episode. You know, it's interesting about what you're saying there with the communication from our parents is that... Um, I realized that I had some resentment toward my dad. And, and for those listeners that know the episodes that my dad and I do on this podcast, my dad and I are extremely close. You couldn't get my, you couldn't get any closer yet in like 2018, 2019, I felt like there was this tennis ball. Like if you hug somebody, you could feel them, feel their cheek, their warmth. You got your hands around them, but there was a tennis ball between our chests. Something was there and I kept feeling it. I kept feeling like this anger come up and I realized through letting shit go, removing distractions that were in the way, I realized that it was that he hadn't told me he loved me in a very long time. And he hadn't told me that he was proud of me. He showed me it was inherent. Every single thing he did, he lived for me, like he lives for me still. Like I call him every day. We talk all the time. All my business advice, I go to him even before the coaches that I pay money to. I was still angry at something. And I, I started to release distractions and shit in, in the way. And what I realized was that, that he wasn't saying those things to me. And I thought, how could a dad not tell his son that he loves him? That's so messed up. And I remember on my wedding day, I was so nervous. And I even said to my wife that day, I was like, oh, my dad says he loves me or something like that. Like, I, I feel like profound. he's supposed to say it today, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And what I, when, I, when I got up the courage to speak with my dad about this, and I really had a beautiful open conversation because it was my job to clear the future, right? Clear the present and open up the entire future of possibilities for our relationship to not have anything in between. He said to me, um, I'm, really, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I, I, I didn't realize that's something you needed. And I said, no, it's, it's not your fault. It's my fault because I realized I didn't create a space for you mm -hmm. to feel safe. And he said to me, well, you know, thinking about that, the reason why I, I was apprehensive is because your mother could leave your, you know, my daughter-in-law, your wife could leave your kids could be out of my life, but you're the one that could crush me and end my existence. And when my, when, and he this is what he's saying to me, when my mother died, when I was 11, I didn't tell her I loved her. She told me and it crushed me and it crushed her. And then she died just like your dad. Like yeah. he went to school. She said, stay with me today. She had cancer and he went to school and six hours later, his dad came to pick him up. His mom was gone. And so he said to me, I feel like if I said it to you or he said to me, thank you for opening this up. I feel like if I said it to you and you didn't say it back, it would crush me and it would bring me back to that day with my mom. So the point of that story is our parents are humans too, and they need help to, to open up. And I think as their children, it's our job 
to give them the tools and skills necessary to communicate effectively with us so that we can open up whatever that block is. And that day, both my dad and I were now freed from anything that had happened in like the 36 years or 35, whatever it was, years that I've been on this planet. And it was a beautiful thing. And from that opening, it created a different relationship between my dad and my wife, my mom and my dad, my dad and his employees, like crazy stuff opened up because I freed him from that thing he's been holding on to for like 50 years, 50 plus years, kind of crazy. And yeah. it's our responsibility. Honestly, it's not just with the kids, with our parents. Sounds like if there was this fear and I, one of my favorite movies growing up was Fight Club. And one of the quotes is like, our fathers are models for God. And that's what we grew up thinking as children. I mean, that we needed to, to, to create this world to feel safe and secure as children because we were so vulnerable. But as we grow older and become more of our own adults, we realize the reality, as you said, was they're humans too, full of fear, yeah. full of regret full of fear of that they did the wrong thing or they raised their children the wrong way. They could have done something, woulda, coulda, shoulda. And if they're around to still communicate that, then yes, the responsibility is once we've learned the language is to approach them and teach them that because that's what love is. But only if they're willing to listen. There are some parents out there that just true, refuse. Or like, so my parents, they, they, my, my dad's gone. My mom's, my mom's Parkinson's. Her brain is, she can't communicate even as much as I try. So I think if I've only they created that space for me, I think my dad was about to. And what a tease. I didn't get that space. But he was, I think, planting the seeds for it. And then it's like that. Now, the only conversation I can have with him is the one I can imagine in my head. Still beneficial, though. I yeah, still think no, it's I, beneficial. I, I, I said, as I said, writing my book, it felt like I was talking to him. And you know, having him there. You know what? The other book that I like to read, Life of Pi, you know, the why not choose to worship that story? It's not as yeah. real as anything else. Have you ever heard of quantum entanglement? It sounds like something I would like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was just thinking, I'm like, I bet he would like this. I'm fascinated by quantum physics. And, yeah. and I, I, my program was you're not a good math student from my mom and teachers and people like that. Yet I was very interested in all that. And my entire business runs off of formulas, my coaching business. Yeah. And so I enjoy the quantum field because if everything is energy and vibration, like the, the, like the entanglement part is the separation of the electrons and then they be able to being able to communicate with each other separately as the same electron. So it's almost yeah. like telepathy or I was oh, like, yeah. I, I was watching something a long time ago on, on ancient aliens and how the rulers of the world, like nobility, were communicating through their crowns and their scepters and their electrons mm -hmm. that were quantum entangled with alien, like crazy, wacky shit. If you're into that, awesome. If you're not, still, it's no, the electrons splitting and still having the same amount of energy, yet it being over here in this vibrational level here and your vibrational field here, and it communicates. It's oh, pretty for neat. sure. You mentioned your this, this tennis ball between you and your father. Like you felt that yeah. there was no actual tennis ball. You felt this no, force no. field, and you unlocked it with the key by saying the right thing with this conversation that dropped down these this force field. That's a real thing. I don't think we have yeah. words yet to describe the receptors in our brain, but there are things that we can do with our brain now that a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, that would it would be conceived as impossible to even conceive that there were stars or that we we can now calculate the Earth revolves around the sun. 100, 300, 400, 1,000 years ago, that I, think, I don't think we had the receptors to even conceive that. We were in Plato's cave. Uh, the concept of fire and tools, now we can build computers or AI. I, I think there, this, this quantum entanglement is just a reference to, this, as I agree with you, the receptors that we don't have it named yet. You walk into a cafe and you can tell which one sometimes is that person that you need to talk to. You walk down the street yeah. and you feel someone yeah. staring at you. Oh, you know, you feel it, even though they're not touching you, you can feel it. Yeah. And there are times when you know, when you meet someone that you know, they're going to be with you for the rest of your life, whether it's something romantic or something spiritual or, and you just don't, can't tell. We just haven't named it yet, except what you say, quantum entanglement, I think is a good start. Yeah. I, I, I just been really watching a lot of, of stuff on quantum mechanics and, and just the, 
the subatomic particles and, and, you know, just energy movement through cells and how it affects the body and how it affects the mind and, and the autonomic nervous system of a person and, and epigenetics. And I'm just fascinated with that kind of stuff. So when did you, obviously you aren't a bartender still, you went to medical school, became a doctor. How, how did that happen? And then what I read about was that you were doing that while traveling around the world. So let's mix those two in. I want to get to the, the part just for the audience to know you're an ER doctor during COVID. Yeah. And I want to get your experience. I don't want to take this thing down a hill though. So I want to be careful. I'm just really fascinated how you made it through all that psychologically. And when do you decide, you know what, I am going to make a choice for myself at this point and become a doctor. No matter how downhill we get, let's just say I'm right now doing a virtual interview with you from the Faroe Islands with a group of nine yeah. wonderful people, strangers, half of whom I just met five days ago, who are now going out on the town. It all will end well for the for people yeah, listening yeah. to this podcast. So let's, we can talk COVID. We can talk about how okay. we got there. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, fascinating to look back and appreciate that I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, the moment that my dad died, I had no idea what five minutes ahead of me would look like. And instead of being anxious over it, which I still felt, I became comfortable feeling anxious over it and just really tried to, my best to focus on the present and invest as much as I can to it. So for an outsider looking in, it would just be a total mess. But for me, it's just connecting the dots when you look back on it. I was a bartender and it will connect. I lost a bet at a bar to somebody where losing the bet would lead to me 36 hours later to be in Egypt with this person. Now, it wasn't because I wanted to go to Egypt or I loved traveling. At the time, I didn't like traveling. I didn't want to leave New York. I had never left New York. And during spring break, summers and winter breaks, I would be Harry Potter staying on campus where everyone else traveled. But it wasn't until I lost yeah. that bet that I was like, you know, what? I'm in a time in my life where I had to invest in my present and I'd rather be a man of my word and $650 poor on this round trip flight that I found that was part of the bet than the guy that flakes and said, no, I was just kidding. So here I found myself in Egypt with this person. was like, what's your name again? Barely knew this person. And, you know, I spent three weeks alone after that person had to go and came back realizing how much travel was going to be integral in my life and i wouldn't have gotten there if it weren't for a random bet it could have been anything but she picked travel we picked travel and then that's when i realized how would i know i'm not meant to be a doctor unless i do something similarly because i had already been very conclusive with i'm going to be bartending the rest of my life i'm never going to love traveling i'm always going to stay in new york for the rest of my life. Hmm. And these were things that were so fine, had a finality to it that I wasn't even sure. And it didn't take until my being dragged, kicking and screaming because of a bet. And let's just be very fair. It was also because of a girl. She was the person I did a bet with. We ended up dating for six months uh, afterwards, sure. but that helped too. But the first week on that trip in Egypt, I hated traveling. I was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I was alone. What, what, uh, what was it? It was. What was, what uh, was the hate? the the what what was the part that you hated oh that i was i was alone when was oh. there ever a time where i was by myself in a place where nobody knew me i didn't know anyone i didn't speak the language and that's what i hated was the fact that i was alone with myself which is analogy to hating myself the yeah. only person i could talk to hang out was myself and if i hated the first week of it it was because i was not comfortable being alone with myself and the, the second week, I was like, I'm getting the hang of this because I was still alive just by virtue of breathing and being present. I'm like, oh, I'm still here. How grateful am I to not have been blown out of existence in this place where no one knew me. I didn't, I didn't travel the phone. The bet was drop everything and go. I only had my backpack. Uh, I was off the grid. And it wasn't until three weeks in, I was like, okay, I love this because I finally came back and said, and was able to look in the mirror, you're capable of surviving this. Therefore, you are more capable than you've ever given yourself credit to. Why do more people believe in you? This random girl that made a, made a bet with you at the bar believes in you more of the travel than you do. And that's when I realized maybe I don't know everything. And maybe I'm meant to be a doctor. So the next part of the bet 
with, with her around and my brother and other people. It's like, well, what's next? You'll be a bartender for the rest of your life? It's like, yeah, actually, I will. But you know what? I'm going to keep doing and making these wagers. I'm going to apply to every med school that I'm willing to go with a subpar GPA, a below average MCAT score, only got extracurriculars and my love for writing to my name. And I even wrote about this story to Egypt in my med school application saying, this is my journey to becoming a doctor. I'm not sure, but here I am. And that's what I think made me stand out. And a school took me. And just like Egypt, I got to keep going. And I know I have been granted an opportunity most people would kill for. And I didn't want to squander that. And if they see something in me, again, it brings me back. Why do these other people see more in me and believe in me more than I give myself credit for? And you just keep going and keep going. And this war of attrition. I stayed. I, in that time, I had just discovered traveling. I was bartending. And I kept those things because I do I definitely wanted to keep those things in my pocket. Those things I know were my love languages and I love to do. I'm not going to give those up. I didn't want to be that med student that quits everything that I knew made me happy for something I didn't know would bring me happiness. And then everyone yeah. said, well, you're not going to be able to do them all. Ten years later, here I am. It's crazy Just to rainbow. think about your you you i felt that before traveling in europe when i was 19 i felt like um nobody knows me here i'm nobody here i'm just a person walking around i'm surprised that you weren't used to that in a place like new york city where there's a thousand people around you and you still feel alone you know and 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 it's interesting that 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 vulnerability, that travel brought that piece out in you. Cause I I think that's what travel is designed for. I I listened to an interview with Rick Steves the other day and he talked about um, the first time his parents took him to Europe and he realized that his mom was kind of overbearing. And that was when you had a child adult passport where your children were on the adult passport. And he realized that by the time he turns 18, he can get his own passport and he can come back to Europe. And Rick Steves who has a hundred million dollar company a year, by the way, no, not a lot of people know that he started with it being an escape from the, the overbearingness of his parents. And my question is, or what I'm curious about is, was it obviously the bet wasn't an escape yet when you got there, did you learn to love the escape from your traditional life back in New York? Or were you loving the life back in New York? Total freedom. That's the answer. Yeah, I, I, I think New York comes pretty close. I do get that from time to time in very obscure parts of the city. But I also grew up in New York. And there is an energy that I am on frequency with that feels familiar no matter where I am in New York. But keep in mind also in New York, everyone speaks the same language as I do. I can read advertisements in the same language that I grew up sure. with. But when you're traveling... Not only do you not know anyone and nobody knows you, but you can't understand anything on TV or the billboards or a sign or be able to be reached if you decide to travel without a cell phone or any data. And that is total freedom. When you get to a point where the only person you can commune with is yourself and your own thoughts, that is as closest thing as we can get to a physical meditation outside of maybe of a pasana retreat or a physical meditation home, but you're really pulled out and physically in a three-dimensional space that's far away from home. And being able to only talk with yourself, that is it. That's freedom with you and yourself. I don't think anything else comes close unless you're in space alone. And yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, but being but I think even in space, you're with you're with actually colleagues that speak your language. You're not gonna be completely alone. So yeah, you're in a foreign fair. country, you're no yeah. one can talk with you. And therefore you can only rely on yourself. And I think that's, yeah, dude, that, so there's a big self-trust piece in there that I I felt that when I went to Russia, when I was 19 and I, we missed our train coming back to Helsinki and we Mm -hmm. had to rent this like mini bus, a bunch of students, it's like six of us or eight of us. And we had to rent this mini bus and you talk about worst case scenario. You now have a visa that's run out in Russia. You can't get out technically. Yeah. And the only way to get out is to drive through the Russian wilderness between Finland and the Western part of Russia overnight. And just think about all the things that are going on out there. Look at a map. It's yeah. dense wilderness, right? Yeah. 
And I remember these, we would get to these checkpoints where they had a little hut where a guy lived with this like rabid, crazy dog. And he would get on and you would just slip some money into like your passport and he would open your passport, grab the money and he would just not look at the passport. And that happened about, I think like 20 times, but there are, I remember this very distinctly. I was really afraid because I'm like, fuck, my parents don't know where I am. I could die out here. They'll bury my body. They'll never know I existed. My parents will spend the rest of their life searching for me. Oh my God, what did I just do? Because there were at one checkpoint, every checkpoint had an anti-aircraft gun mounted to the road, right? To mow your ass down if you blow it. And there were car carcasses on the side of the road that had been mowed down by this thing. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, what's, what's stopping this. Right. And so I dealt with this. I can't communicate. I can't read the signs. I can't call my parents. I, I, it's kind of like you and I talked about in the beginning with the boat, right? You're 30 foot waves in a 50 foot boat across the ocean. You have to figure something out within yourself to calm yourself that internal panic down and and there's a connection that that only travel i think can get you besides like plant medicine journeys by the way i'm talking like total (laughs) lucid but that's what they call them trips yeah right yeah yeah true tripping yeah that's what they call them tripping they don't use any other verb you got a trip man yeah what a trip yeah that's fair dude that's crazy so i want to make sure we have time to get to the um just so you become a doctor and now let's fast forward to 2020 because I, I've never talked to an ER doctor who went through COVID stuff. I think my biggest question as a human who went through that and understood that, and we had a, my, my wife had a baby at the, right at wow. the beginning of COVID. Ooh. Luckily we were on the front end of the shutdown and I was able to be in the room and it was cool. Um, how did you, how did you get through that? I mean, psychologically, you're you got trauma from your dad passing away. Now you are watching family members and other doctors and people that don't show up the next day that you just talked to or had lunch with. I mean, and the fatigue and the mental and the emotional ta- like how did you work through that? It's about being comfortable with the uncomfortable, making a habit out of that. And I think I had been very prepared through my father's death and then living alone and trying to create a life out of that to get to a point where once I felt alone again and where I, and I couldn't travel uh, and depend on travel to reset my, my mental health, uh, all I could do was to hone on past experiences of embracing discomfort and becoming, as you said, one with the waves, one with chaos. And then going back to your, your Russia story, I know it's travel and whatnot, but we always say that at the end of the day, you can either have a good trip or a good story. That's the story mm-hmm. you remember. If everything went hunky-dory and according to plan, you're going to be like, it was a good trip. You're not going to be bringing it up in a podcast with someone you just met. You are proud of that story. Right. And not, I don't want to minimize what happened with COVID because that was people died. But the feeling of being comfortable with chaos and saying, we're going to get out of this and I'm going to remember this. I'm going to honor it. I'm going to properly grieve it when it's time to, but until I get to that point, until I deserve that space to be able to grieve properly, I'm going to become one with chaos and just go with the waves. Because if I freak out or leave or not show up to work because I, and I had the means to, as a per diem doctor, I could have chosen not to show up. I didn't sign up, never signed a full-time contract. I ended up, with my freedom to work wherever I wanted, showing up more often in more places than I expected to. Because by being comfortable with chaos, I got on this frequency when I was like, I need to be there because I don't want to sit at home uh, if I don't have to be and try to figure out from the safety of things in, in this unknown. I want to be there. I want to see my enemy and I want to know as much as I can out of it so I can fully and properly overcome this as quickly as possible, even though that could be putting myself in harm's way. And that was a surprise to me because as a per diem doctor, I thought I signed up as a per diem after residency before COVID because if there were a pandemic, I could be like sitting back and like, nope, not taking part of this one, not going to hurt my family and whatever. <laughs> and, you know, be in the safety because I don't have to go to work. No one, no one's telling me to because I didn't sign a full-time contract. The irony is I ended up going more often to more different places, which actually gave me a better understanding that what I was experiencing at one hospital was what every hospital is going through. 
to compare a full-time doctor may, is in their silo of their community institution. They feel like, oh, this is only happening in my hospital, that we don't have enough PPE or masks or I'm wearing trash bags, where I was getting the big picture. And I was like, no, this is not personal. It's bad everywhere. And knowing that, I was much more comfortable in knowing that it was something that I, I, it was out of my hands, is out of my control. And what I can control for is at least showing up and showing up is half the battle. And the more comfortable I became with something like COVID during a time where it was so uncomfortable, I, I feel that I was able to survive it uh, mental health wise better than mm -hmm. if I were just to stay at home and just wonder, you know, what could have been, what could I do or what is going yeah. on? And, you know, I, and I credit that to a lifetime of always running towards the fire ever since my dad died, running towards Egypt, running towards med school when I wasn't sure the, the poison cup, just, just pick one. Right. Right. Yeah, man. That's so interesting though. Like the, the thing that I was thinking when I read your bio was how did people keep showing up? How did you go home? Like after a 40 hour or 50 hour, you know, stint, like how, how did you remain in integrity to your commitment? Obviously without the contract, let's, forget about that. Yeah. I'm talking like your, um, your commitment as a doctor to help people, right? The, um, was it Hippocratic oath? No. Yes. Yeah. The Hippocratic oath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what that, that tests your integrity beyond probably beyond your dad, probably beyond travel and the, and the fear of both and the trauma of those type of things. Cause you're seeing so much chaos. Yeah. What, what, what was the, what was the, the, the link that kept your integrity intact? Do you know? It's love as cheesy okay. as that sound and contrived as that may be. It's love. Like what makes you show up to your relationship every day, even when it gets hard, even when they may annoy the crap out of you, even when things are not going the way you want, or you're fighting, you still show up. And there's some maturity of locking yourself in the cage and throwing out the key because you're not going to leave the room because you want to make yeah. it work. And that's love. And I mean, that's very easy to apply to a relationship. But what about my relationships to my colleagues, my city, my community? And that's what surprised me because I thought really when the pandemic came around, I was like, well, wow, at least I'm per diem. So I know when to give myself breaks and, you know, just check in. If I may have caught COVID, I can take a few days off to myself and not worry about breaking a contract or violating my full-time commitment to a hospital uh, system. But what happened and surprised me, like love usually does to anyone, it surprises you. Yeah. The temporary form of insanity knows, known as love, that you, I ended up going every day. I, and I think I took only like, I don't know, I worked 35 days of the first 50 days of COVID, uh, wow. where most people work only, um, full-time doctors work only 10 days a month. And I, I worked a lot and it's love in the way that's war, right? War is always been, COVID's always been compared to war. It was something that involved the entire country. There was the front lines, there was the home front. People were doing their part at home by staying and making PPE and we were on the front line. So a lot of analogies to war. And that's the case then why, when you, when, why do soldiers keep going back when you ask them that? And it's comparatively using that analogy, they say it's for their brothers for the person next to them, for their brethren. It's the love for them. They, regardless of the politics, or whether they believe in the mission or the big yeah. reason why they're there, they do it for the person next to them. And, I, and they call that love as well. If we're going to use that analogy, then I will embrace that full-heartedly. Sure. It was love that made me go in every day. No, I like that, man. It, it's, and you watched a lot of people pass away. Your grandfather passed away of COVID and you, you weren't with him, but you monitored him. You watched fellow doctors and nurses die i mean that's that's you yeah. were prepared for that unfortunately you had to deal with the preparation when you were young however it prepared you to probably be a great leader in the organizations that you went to and as a per diem doctor you worked all over the city of new york right then you just yeah. what, what do you do like call up and say hey do you need is there a spot to fill or like how do you do that they just text me <laughs> doctor got oh. sick can you cover <laughs> let's go or, or let's i have go. a fever can you come you know and i'm like Yo, I ha I can't be two places at once, and I got to just pick the one that like whoever first come first served, or yeah, they have yeah. hazard pay, and they're like, I'll pay you double if you come in for three hours. And I would go to two different hospitals or do two different shifts in a single like 
12 hour period. Sometimes mm-hmm. like I, I gonna, I, you know, I want to make it both parties happy. So I'll show up here for a couple hours, make you happy. And then I'm going to take a cab and go to this hospital, make you happy so that you feel like I've always, I, I've been putting out fires everywhere. Uh, I, yeah. I, and I learned how to enjoy that in the, enjoy is a weird word, but like try to reframe that experience as something like I am, I'm curious. I want to know what's going on in this hospital and that hospital and that borough so that I have the best picture in mind. And enjoying the fact that I could get my hands on different PPE because one hospital wouldn't have face shields. Another one wouldn't have masks, but they would have the other thing the other would have. So I would just grab a bunch and give it to others and vice versa or cobble my own PPE out of different places. It's like an Iron Man suit. So those are all little (laughs) things that helped me get by uh, all those trauma that I was seeing from all these people dying. It's like, how can I help? How can I put out um, the fire the best I can for my colleagues that were getting sick? I guess it's your choice. Is you're either going to sit in it and like suffer in it, or you're going to do something about it. And you chose to do something about it. It's a great metaphor for life, anyway. When, when shit's going down, and it sounds like travel, going to five, ten different hospitals, regardless, would be challenging because you have to learn the wings, you have to learn the systems, the the different systems, the different nurses, and then you throw COVID on top of it in a in a worldwide pandemic. It, it's almost like travel prepared you for that part to be comfortable in any environment when you don't understand the layout and may not speak the language with that team of nurses or PAs. And then your, your, the situation with your father prepared you to deal with your own mortality fears. It's really interesting the way that your life kind of sets you up, you know, the, the, the stuff in the past sets you up for your future. It's really interesting. Yeah. The seed was planted and without really knowing where it was going to lead. But at the end of the day, if you've had all the answers of what things happen now would mean in the future, you wouldn't, there'll be no interest. There will be no surprises. And I'm grateful for those seeds planted. And, and, you know, even Steve Jobs says the dots don't make sense when you try to connect them moving forward. They make sense when you look back and connect them backwards. Oh, this is why maybe it took 18 years to get there, 14 years to get there, but it does come full circle. Eventually just trust the process. If you truly trust yourself, and this man in this world, you know, trusting yourself, trust the process and the universe will conspire with you to make sense of everything, even if it doesn't make sense in the moment. Couldn't speak, spoken it better myself. So real quick, as we wrap up, 200 countries you've been to in the last 12 years, countries and territories, because some people, Amazing. Antarctica doesn't count as a country and Greenland doesn't count as a country, but I do because it took a lot of effort to get to those places. So that counts in the number. Love it, man. Absolutely love it. What's your favorite country? It's like asking who's my favorite person or choosing your favorite child. They're all my favorites in different ways. And if I don't like something, it's probably something I was going through and I got to try it again. But the country I go back to over and over and over and over again is India or South Asia in general, because I've been in Pakistan now as often as I've been to India. But that region, uh, as well as the Middle East, uh, have been, you know, something that I find myself bringing, you know, crossing paths with more often than anywhere else. But, you know, Budapest is my favorite European city. You know, I, nice. Slovenia was the most unexpectedly amazing weekend that I had there. Cuba was the most fun. New Zealand is the most magical. Spain, Iran has the best food. Uh, or Japan, and not best food, but also the most convenient. I mean, everyone has their own little superlatives. I can really give little yeah. awards to. Not just one. That's so because... cool, man. That's so cool. Look, this, is, uh, this has been a really awesome conversation with you and I'm, I'm like, it's just so cool to know that there are humans on the planet like you who not only have this, this path and this purpose for their personal life, they also have this beautiful alignment with their professional life. And to see that as an example with someone that didn't have to do that, you could have wallowed in your shit and blamed the world for all your problems and your pain. It's really nice to know that there's somebody out there that, that owns their paths and is helping other people on theirs too. And uh, it's so cool to meet you, man. Thanks. No, the pleasure is mine. This has been, it's a back and forth and you gave yeah. me some insights. I took some notes. So believe me, it's, <laughs> it's mutual. So thank you for the, this opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, Dr. Calvin Sun, it's a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, real quick, tell people where they can find you. Is it monsoon? I'm going to butcher this. 
tell, tell us where we can find your book and other stuff about oh, monsoondiaries.com. Yeah, depending on when you're listening to this, uh, I have a book coming out released by HarperCollins, Harper Horizon, on September 27th. Also part of the crazy story of how things came to me. I wasn't looking to make a book and someone approached me and two years later, it's going to be on shelves September 27th. And you can find it on my website, monsoondiaries.com or my Instagram, Facebook, Twitter handles, all is Monsoon Diaries, M-O-N-S-O-O-N-D-I-A-R-I-E-S. Take Monsoon Wedding plus Motorcycle Diaries, mash them together, Monsoon Diaries. Nice. That's awesome, man. Well, audience, really appreciate you listening. Remember, be purposeful and become irreplaceable. And we love you. We appreciate you. We'll catch you on the next one.